Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're doing part three of Losing My Edge, the complete dissection. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk about every reference to every band in LCD Sound Systems, Losing My Edge. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. My name is Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. And today we are finishing off our deep dive on LCD Sound Systems Losing My Edge. And a funny thing happened on the way to part three, uh, between part one and two and now three. Um, all of us have gotten a little bit better acquainted with James Murphy. Um, you two through uh, reading Meet Me in the Bathroom and me uh, seeing him for the first time live at Brooklyn Steel last week, which you guys I know did in April. Um, it's uh, It was great to see him live. It was great to, to really watch the interaction with the audience. It was very different, um, different kind of experience than I've had at most shows that I've gone to in Brooklyn uh, and, you know, in New York in general in my whole life. Um, much more sort of reverent at the same time as, you know, the crowd was very happy and playful and hopeful. It was, uh, it felt, you know, sort of uh, in an odd way in a, in a place that probably relishes atheism. It felt a little religious. Uh, what did you think? What was the difference between the first and second time you saw him at Brooklyn Steel Christian a couple months? No, I think, uh, you know, you, you make a great point, which is that it's not often that I go to a concert and end up knowing everybody I'm standing around by the end of the show. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think in that way, there, there, it did sort of foster like a, a sense of I mean, community almost. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it really is. Um, there's, some, there's something really sort of profound about uh, everybody knowing every word of this song, um, you know, of every song that's that's played. And. Um, you know, it's it's incredible also to see uh, to to see people sort of respect rules. I mean, in a in a well, setting, the, yeah, that's what you're in saying. In a setting the, like this, I'm yeah. Well, they, you know, usually it's it's a matter of you know house rule or something. You know, don't bring your phone or don't use your phone or don't break it out, um, or we'll kick you out. Uh, this was l- merely a, a, a preference suggested by the artist. You know, please don't take out your phone and uh, tape or record. Uh, you know, videotape or record any of this. And, um, you know, it was funny. He sort of deputized the audience um, in, a, in a very, you know, velvet-handed way. It was, uh, you know, please, hey, you guys, please don't do this. Um, I prefer you don't. And, um, you know, the crowd kind of well, there's a itself. Good, there's a good logic. Yeah, I mean, there was a good logic behind it, which is basically, look, we've worked really hard on these songs. We don't want the first time the world hears them to be uh, to be through your shitty cell phone Instagram video. Um, and, you know, I, th- I, I that makes sense. A lot of artists could say that. I mean, the, the amazing part about this was that um, in stuck. a world where it seems virtually impossible, uh, people were really sort of prepared to, you know, set that aside and actually and sort of enjoy the moment and I you know I personally look as somebody whose cell phones have been a part of of concerts almost as long as I've been going um it was uh 
I mean, frankly, it's, it's kind of liberating. Um, well, and uh, a nice, you know, nice, nice experience for everybody. I think, I, you know, you thought the same thing, right, Chair? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, exactly. It was the same sort of rules as in the April show that I attended. But, um, you know, it also helped kind of marry the experience that LCD, I think, does so well, where, you know, we've all been to a million indie rock, rock concerts, and, and we kind of fold our arms and we may nod a little, and, and occasionally, you know, if it's a, a loud enough, thrashy enough band, there's a, a tiny little mosh pit of, of men p- pouncing into each other. But um, the thing that's so different about an LCD show is it, it's it's the same people uh, at a lot of those shows, but everyone's dancing, you know, it, they uh, they you know, make dance music for, for indie rock kids or, or whatever you want to say. And, and it, it's a, not having your phone out, not filming it, not, you know, trying to get that picture or that selfie for, you know, um, now I sound like an old man, for social media or whatever, really, I thought, kind of helped that experience as well. Like, people were just in, in focus to the music. And, and it's very rare that I've gone to a show that isn't a, a nightclub or a specific DJ set where the whole crowd is really kind of having a, a party and in dancing. It. Yeah, in it. Absolutely. And I found that... Yeah, you know, I mean, like it... Well, it like I said, oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I was reflecting on the uh, I was reflecting on the show to, to somebody the other day, and I realized, you know, I was describing the fact that everybody there is... It, it's, a, it's a crowd of people who really don't typically dance, dancing their asses off, um, and sharing, you know, basically drugs with the people around them, and then suddenly had this, like moment where I realized that I might be describing a Grateful Dead show, God forbid. Yeah. Um, but well, it has, I, uh, you know, there is a sort of similar dynamic at play, I think. I, I would, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to say it now. James Murphy is the Jerry Garcia of Williamsburg. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, thankfully, uh, you know, this music sorry, is... Sorry, James. <laughs> no, no, I, th- I think that's a high, I think that's high praise. I mean, this guy is... Well, you know, very revered, and people will, you know, mere suggestion. Well, people will do things that, um, you know, he'd prefer, like put their cell phones away and dance. Um, I think also, uh, you know, there, it, it is, you know, it is kind of funny because, um, you know, there, there's almost a uh, it, the rest of the band. I mean, for such joyous music, it's not a particularly uh, active band. It's a, you know, I mean, it's incredibly stoic and expressionless. Uh, and it's, you know, I'm looking at you, Nancy. Um, it is, uh, it's kind of funny how, how much, inf- how infectious the music is to the crowd when, the, you know, when the band's not really that performative. It's interesting. No, absolutely. I mean, and he sort of, he sort of captures the, the spotlight for sure. I mean, he's, he's moving around the stage a, a ton, but, um, but for the most part, everybody else is really focused on playing their parts and not screwing it up. And, and you know, um, the, the rumors might suggest that they would be scolded pretty harshly if, if they did. So James um, Brown of indie rock. Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, the band leader would not be pleased. Um, well, funny, you know, because kind of pre this sort of, uh, you know, showman, band leader, front man, you know, uh, Christian and I, and Christian's much further in than I am, have been, have been reading Lizzie Goodman's excellent book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, which we will, will be doing a pod on, and, and I can't wait for when to catch up and for me to finish, but, um, you know, and learning a little bit about how this all came about, you know, and so, Christian, you're a little further than I am, um, let's talk, you know, the song that we're going to start dissecting, the first single that came out in 02 on that DFA comp. Yeah, Lizzie absolutely, I mean... Yeah, losing my edge was was I mean as you say it was the first uh, it was the first single in two thousand two um, and it was a, a 
well, it was the first LCD sound system, 12 inch, and it was uh, which came out with B connection and um, and and losing my edge, uh, one on each side, and um, you know this is three years, of course, before they actually you know be- before the first album was was cut. So I mean, it's it's worth sort of putting in perspective like how um, how early a start this was. But there's a there's a great anecdote. Um, that Tyler Brody, who is sort of the, the patron of DFA, shares about the fact that, you know, I I think I've, for one, certainly always thought that this was really a sort of universal song um, about the sort of jealousy and, and anger and resentment that comes with um, sort of, you know, aging. maybe <laughs> aging out of the hip. Yeah, aging out of the, the you know, the, the point at which kids. you are truly on the cutting edge of music. Um, and sort of, yeah, I'm worrying about the, the, the folks who are, who are coming up from behind, as he says. Um, but it's actually, uh, it's actually a very, very specific um, reference or incident that set this off, which was that Tyler Brody's ex-girlfriend brought Pharrell Williams to a party, and James Murphy spent, you know, half an hour talking to the guy and walked away from it saying, fuck, I'm losing my edge to that guy. Um, you know, he's a genius producer and, and um, really knows his stuff. Uh, and, you know, I think that that, that actually um, sort of kicked this off. And there, were, there was another, you know, confluence of events, really, which um, basically the fact that the Rapture was, was leaving DFA at this point, they, they tried to make a deal work um, in which uh, DFA would have sort of been their representative or inner interlocutor with EMI, uh, a major, but, but that sort of broke down and, and the Rapture who were a favorite band of, of Murphy's and, um, and, uh, a production project of his walked away. And I think that, that, that sort of inspired him, um, to, uh, to take up the reins himself and say, you know what, I'm going to try and do this on my own. Um, so there's a, you know, there, there's a ton of great, uh, great material here about the sort of the, the specifics around the, the song, but, um, but I love the Pharrell Williams part. I don't know. That is great. Well, I, I mean, and, and frankly, you know, you can't be as cool as Pharrell Williams. So it, you know, or, or, you know, <laughs> so, or yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I can't believe, uh, you know, for the past, I've known who that guy is for the past 22 years, probably. And. A, he hasn't aged, and B, he's gotten cooler with age, which is just frightening. Um, yeah, so. he can, yeah, he can do like a kid soundtrack and still be cool. It's very, mm-hmm. very hard yeah, to exactly. But I mean, you know, there's there's a there's another sort of you know interesting component of this. I think that we've we've talked about, and, and Wyndham, you've mentioned that you know you see this as sort of the the unofficial uh, motto of or of the podcast, or yeah, or one of the you know one of um, uh, source of inspiration for us to get started, which is you know that that you grew up at a very different time uh, as a music consumer when it was really difficult to, to sort of dig into, uh, you know, dig into the, the esoterica. Whereas for me, it's like I just sit down with my laptop and I've always been able to make up a ton of ground pretty quickly. Yeah, you can, I mean, you can fudge it by saying, you know, by reading everything you need to read about can f- f- over the course of, a, you know, a weekend. Um, you know, I, I had to uh, walk to Germany uh, to buy for my first can record. Um, but, but you know, it, it, in the snow, uphill both ways. Truly, so get off my fucking lawn. Um, you know, the the fact is that you know it it really was. If I've I've said this, I think several times on the podcast, and I will say it. I've said it a million times in in real life, which is, you know, what I would have given at twelve years old to have every song by everybody at my fingertips. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would have been like. Like, it, I, I would dream about that at night. You know, that's, like, the thing that, you know, I mean, I used to say, I wonder how many times I've heard the song How Soon Is Now in the mid-'80s. Like, I wonder if that's the song I've listened to the most ever. And then, you know, lo and behold, 
20 years later, 25 years later, the iPod is invented, and you actually can see which songs you've listened to the most. I mean, it was, a, you know, it's it's sort of like, um, you know, you willed it Spotify into existence. Spotify puts your end of year playlist together for you, you know, yeah, curates exactly. a list and says, here's but, what you listen to the most times this year, and it's like, well, that's a really interesting, yeah. And there's two ways of looking at it. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, I, I happen to love it, and I'm sure to a degree, uh, <clears throat> I, I can speak for, the, to the degree I can speak for James Murphy, I'm sure he loves the idea of having everything you could ever want all the time. It does, however, wipe out you know, about 30 years of hard labor that he and I probably both did, you know, looking for everything, researching everything, collecting whatever you could, making tapes off of friends, you know, blah, 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 the whole bit. But that, know. of course, also has a kickback effect on the on the consumer of music themselves, which I think is, is sort of one of the most fascinating ideas to pick apart, which is if you have every song at your fingertips at the age of 12, do you appreciate it differently? Or, and I think you do. Yeah, it's truly taking a drink from a from a fire hose. It's fire you know, hose. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I sorry. Go. I mean, I think there's there's that kind of old feeling of the romance of finding the stuff, which you know I, I think like you when I'm I'm very happy to have everything at my fingertips today mm-hmm. too, but I'm also very happy to have had to find shit and and know that there were like other scenes that I've. I mean, it's funny. The the most interesting part is when you now with Spotify or with the sort of interconnecting musical sources of of the internet, um, you, I even now can listen to genres like, for instance, Christian and I, Sleater-Kinney pod, where that was a band that was totally relevant to my age and to where I was, but I was into other music scenes, you know, at the time, and I just never really got that, but if I want to go back and kind of revisit that scene, too, I can do it, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, I, I think... And, well, you know, there's, there's an interesting sort of transition, and I wonder if the culmination of all of this, though, is really that that you know, um, I mean, it's it's the sort of the payola connection to to Spotify, right? That, that increasingly playlists are being curated for you, and decisions are being made that lead you to new songs, new artists, and and sort of discovery um, that that isn't necessarily organic. It's not like, it's not your own work that you're putting in. Um, and you know, you can find new artists very easily. They're recommended to you every single week. Um, and you know, I think that that, if, if you, you appreciate things that you work for a little mm-hmm. more, um, well, that's kind of a, well, here's what, what I was going to pod. Sorry, go one point win real quick. I mean, that's what makes this pod kind of fun and interesting because we had, we've, we've continued an organic music discovery through our, our ongoing text, which has become the pod, you know, and, and that's sort of, I think as much as we get things curated for each other, it's also something that we continue to kind of turn each other on to. What I, I would say, you know, I mean, part of, part of my question and, and, you know, creating and, you know, co-creating this podcast with you guys is, you know, a, you know, there's the, there's the obvious point, which is, you know, Jer has kids and I, you know, am close, you know, I'm in my late forties. So, you know, can, do we still have the energy or the time and the ability to research things the way we used to? And the answer to that is obviously no. The question, if you flip that around is, you know, Christian being 28, could he ever love as something as much as we used to love, uh, that thing that we had to work harder to find than he does, and that's not a slight, but it's just a, a you know, it's just a question, which is, can he possibly love anything as much as I loved Psycho Candy when I discovered it by myself when I was overseas when I was in you know junior high or, um, or high school, and the answer yeah. I found uh, it was very glaring. 
um, to me and, and became very apparent to me. Obviously, I've known Christian for a while and know him well, but it uh, became extremely crystal clear to me when I went to see LCD Sound System with him last week, and he lost his goddamn mind, which is, you know, <laughs> yes. And so the answer is yes, he can love stuff that he didn't have to, you know, plow the fields to, to find. Yeah, well, it's, but but I do find even in my own uh, even in my own development that the stuff that like you know I I did sort of find in record stores on my own or that were sort of luck of the draw or maybe recommendations on you know uh, from a friend of a friend kind of thing. Some of that stuff does sort of solidify its place in your you know um, in, your in, in your sort of personal library. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, with that, um, you want to take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll and we'll finish dissecting losing my edge. Absolutely. We'll turn back to the song about the aging hipster looking back on the uh, the Brooklyn Knights with the little jacket, the art school Brooklyn Knights with the little jackets. Or in, in my case, looking back at Christian, um, who needed to uh, needed a change of clothing <laughs> immediately after LCD Sounds. <laughs> Welcome back to Brother, 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 where today we are discussing Losing My Edge, the uh, first single from LCD Sound System. And uh, we're picking up in the third of three podcasts, breaking down every single one of these references. And, and, you know, as we talked about before, this was something that we sort of tried to look at chronologically, I think, initially. Um, but ultimately, you know, teased out that, that there were these sorts of spheres of um, influence or buckets of influence that sort of, you know, took shape on their own um, as, as we really sort of started to study and, and pick apart this song. Um so, you know, for, for the last, uh, last installation of this series, um, you know, we're picking up with, uh, with New Wave and post-punk um, and a group of bands here that, you know, I, I think are near and dear to a lot of us. Um, and, you know, first on that list is, uh, is Joy Division. So, Wyndham, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. Near and dear. That's those are the two words I always think of when I think of Joy Division. Um, they uh, <laughs> yeah. one of one of as opposed the... to detached, distant. Yeah, <laughs> there, you there you go. But you know what's interesting, and you know this this ties back to the conversation we were just having about having to work hard to um, 
uh, to find things, and also you didn't have to work that hard to find Joy Division, but also the the sort of myths, uh, you know, the myths surrounding a band versus the reality and the sort of the ability in a, in a time when there wasn't a ton of media to maintain a, an air of mystery. And I mean, you listen to Joy Division. You know, you don't you don't hear a band that looks like that band looked. They were kind of youngish, you know, average guy looking guys from from Manchester that named themselves after, um, you know, a, 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 a pretty dire, um, you know, it was a pretty dire reference. I mean, Joy, the Joy Division was uh, the you know a, the group of women that used to service. Um, they were sort of prostitutes that would service, um, you know, Nazi troops. SS um, officers, yeah. SS officers. They were referred to as the Joy Division. Um, that said, you take that, you know, reference, you you put an out, out an album cover, um, you know, with the most cryptic of, of artwork, beautiful artwork, but very cryptic. And then you have this, you know, this band where, um, you know, the, the music is very angular and... and you know, uh, intense and very straight, but, uh, and then the sing, you know, the, the vocal is, is very monotone and severe and it all has a very, very, leaves you with a very, very chilly feeling. Uh, like there is no connection whatsoever to this band, which is why everybody connected so much with this band. Um, you know, and, and it's, it, it will always, you know, remain an open-ended question following Ian Curtis's suicide, uh, in the early eighties, you know, what would this band have morphed into? Would there have been, you know, I mean, obviously they became New more order. eventually, but <laughs> with, you know, they're, they're, you know, people don't realize that Level Terrace Apart was the last single, um, that they had. And, and the that, least Joy Division-like. Exactly. They were definitely moving in a much poppier direction. Um, and it's probably my favorite song of all time. So, um, it, it, you know, I wonder if they were making a shift from you know, being a, such a, a cold and distant and, and uh, you know, sort of the, the absolute, you know, forefathers of, I guess, what would be called, um, well, I guess it, it's just a, sort of an angular, you know, goth took a lot from it and, and you know, future, you know. Yeah, but they influenced a lot of... A lot, a lot of, of wide-ranging stuff. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, including Danny Brown, who... Uh, named his album Atrocity Exhibition last year. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a... Well, and Vince Staples, who borrowed his album art from, uh, from was it... Yeah, and then Pleasures, so... Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's, it's bizarre, you know, it's bizarre to me how many people know and love Joy Division when um, they seem like the least uh, knowable and lovable, lovable <laughs> band of all time. And I, I guess that's, that's a very personal take on Joy Division, but I don't think anybody who's listening to this doesn't know Joy Division and doesn't know that they're a great band, so... No, uh, it's probably... I, I, and I think I would just have one one bit about sort of the instrumentation and sort of the, on, the, on the musicality side. I mean, you know, the, the really tight um, sort of uh, drumming from, from Stephen Morris, I think, um, you know, really did create a sound um, that was used and reused over and over and over and over again. And the um, bass leads. Throughout the, yeah, exactly. And the fact that they were basically playing, a, a, you know, um, a, a bass as a guitar, um, which was just sort of a... a a matter of um, you know personnel um, and who, who the better uh, who, who the better players were in the band, um, but you know I think sonically they they sort of pushed the envelope a little bit, um, and and that's definitely something that I think uh, would have been revered here um, uh, in in the context of losing my edge. 
100%. So next up is uh, AHA on the opposite end of the spectrum, one of the sunnier um, bands from the 80s. Christian, you want to tell us a little bit about Christian's going to take on AHA. Yeah. These guys are, this is like another group that, that to me um, might, did, did they, how good was their English? Were they just like pretending? Oh, like No, um, like most Scandinavians, <laughs> they spoke letter perfect English. You know, it's, there's then so much. What the hell was up with the ABBA? ABBA, they they speak perfect English yeah. now. They, they, I mean, they were. Uh, <laughs> I thought they. I thought the whole thing was that they didn't. They were just no. I think anyway. when I think when um, Waterloo came out, the, the 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 couple of them didn't. But you know, they wrote they oh, wrote the, songs. Okay. Um, They're quick studies. Yeah, well, they, in any event, uh uh-huh was uh, what nineteen eighty five. Take on me is the really the. I, I guess they they formed in Oslo in eighty two, but then um, nineteen eighty five when they released Hunting High and Low was sort of their. Uh, their high watermark um, with Take On Me, which, as I understand it, was just the biggest hit on the planet. Yeah, you couldn't for a while. escape that song or video. And, and it was, didn't it was want kind to of. Necessarily. The, I liked it. No, nah, it's, a, it's a catchy song, but it also was the, the you know, sort of birth of everybody tuning into MTV, and, and it had a very um, distinctive kind of forward video. animated video that was, you know, the comic book. Nobody was doing videos quite like that. So that video, I mean, won all the awards, and it, that song was just everywhere. Yeah, they won Grammy for Best point. New Artist, and like yeah. they were a, you know, the mega stars for. And yeah, exactly. Good song, I think they remained pretty big in Europe, but I, I will say that that you know, if you ever need a an, you know an establishing um, riff to say, okay, this this takes place in the 80s if you're doing movies and television, you can drop that <laughs> piano, <laughs> that keyboard piece from Take On Me, and everybody knows exactly where you are. And so, yeah, it's the Creedence Clearwater well. Revival Vietnam of the 1980s. Exactly. Yeah, it's Absolutely, the fortunate, yeah. fortunate son of, of high hair. Yeah. <laughs> so, cool. Anyway, so should we turn to uh, a, a slightly more uh, obscure reference, or, or yeah, have we exhausted our aha discussion? I think it's. I think okay. we've, we've certainly exhausted it since it's the only song that I know. Um, yeah, exactly. There was <laughs> this heat is the the next <laughs> reference, which was Jer- a, Jeremy would like to point out that he, he or excuse me, Wyndham would like to point out that he knows another song by uh-huh. I do. Yeah. The sun always shines which, on which TV one? was the sh- the sun always shines on TV was their really kind of bad follow up, but um, oh, okay, you know, and with with the, <laughs> the song title to boot. Yeah, no kidding. Um, okay. Anyways, so, yeah, so heat. this heat was, uh, you know, an experimental band from, from uh, England, Brixton, and they, late 70s, were talking, you know, kind of going back to a topic we talked about earlier, which was the, the love of, of Krautrock that uh, Murphy has and, and that most sort of hipsters and, and music aficionados have. These guys definitely um, fall into that can and Faust world, um, you know, known for, you know, they had a, a just kind of being really sort of forefront with loop tape looping and uh ambient soundscapes you know one of the the songs uh, that i know was a, a new kind of water that um that was actually a little more post-punk than just this sound but they did a lot of kind of forward thinking and, and doing like 24 t- track tape loops and and things that were very influential obviously to to DJs and to, to you know music aficionados and, and folks that that like that like that stuff, so bands like, like Sonic Youth and, yeah. and uh, composers, you know, they definitely have like an underground kind of uh, like guitar cult obsessives following. in particular. Yeah. It's like Glenn Branca stuff and like uh, yeah, it's that really scronky like scratchy early guitar art stuff. rock. Yeah, no wave. So uh, oh, cool, very much no wave. All right, yeah, well, uh, no, it's, it's cool sound. 
Next up is the normal. Oh yeah. So da- so Daniel Miller is uh, is behind the normal, and um, you know he founded Mute Records in 1978, and really. This, I mean, under this moniker, he he just released one single, um, which was uh, TVOD on on the uh, side A and and Warm Leatherette on side B, which is still one of my favorite songs to song. throw on like between sets. Yeah, yeah it's so good. Um, it's just it's super fucking weird, um, but it's an it's an awesome tune to throw and on weirdly, playlists. And, it was kind um, of a hit. You know, I mean, it's not an unknown song from back then. It's such a strange song that it was almost like a novelty in the same way that like Sex Dwarf by Soft Cell was. You know. Uh, Rock lobster, weird, yeah. just weird stuff. Just so weird that, that it actually surface. made it to the, you know, actually made the radio, you know. When Grace Jones covered it, right? Yeah. Um, subsequently, but I mean, it was just yeah. It's like, and it's got it just, just. I don't know what a warm leather is exactly, and we could it's the opposite speculate of on that subject. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I always think of like moist towelette and somehow sort of it just it seems kind of gross like i don't i'm not really sure it's, just, it's, wet. it's like one of those things like when you don't you know because this song came out a really long time ago so when i was a kid when i first heard it and in the same way that sex dwarf was like a you you knew there was something about it that There's was something like, like nasty kink, about this but you can't quite sub, figure out and, what it and, is and like a sub you know fetish genre yeah. but you don't know what it means you just know that yeah. warm weather i hear, I hear like, warm it just sounds like uh, yeah, whips exactly. and shit, you know, and that was like... It's like something I will learn about when I'm older. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's sort of the... Yeah. First um, But, you know, I think additionally it was, uh, it was you know, a, a big contribution, and this is sort of the, the you know, part that sounds might like get missed as it's thrown on playlists, but it was, I mean, it really did have, like, a sort of significant contribution, I think, to the then, like, electronic pop playing field, um, given that it came out in 78, you know, it's not it's not hard to, to see how that could sort of, uh, you know... Um, Prefigure some of the uh, some of the synthesized and and you know drum machine sounds that came out over the following decade. Mm-hmm. And then the, so so should we talk about a band that has more than one song now, or more than two should. songs? I guess. <laughs> All right, uh, so let's go to the Human League. Well, they, Jeremy? they they have more than one song, but they also have more than two lives. So yeah, Jared, you know uh, you know Human no, League. No, I was actually gonna punt this one over. I do know that, but I was gonna punt it over to you, Win, because I think you had a little more insight on Human League than I well, do. Yeah, because they were really, again, they were one of these bands that was really two bands. There was uh, there was the early Human League, the, um, you know, Martin Ware and Ian Marsh, uh, who ultimately left the band and went uh, and formed Heaven 17. Um, but their, their first, uh, you know, sort of recognize, you know, their first song that would gain any recognition was called Being Boiled. And it's a really weird, proggy, um, you know, keyboard forward record that came out um, in the late 70s. Um, and it's so different from what the Human League became in the same way that, you know, Gang of Four put out entertainment and then put out, you know, I Love a Man in Uniform a few years later. It's like you can't even reconcile that those are the same, that's the same band. And, and same with, um, you know, so the very, so the two sort of music minds behind Human League leave the band start another band called Heaven 17 Phil Oakley who is the guy they brought on to be their singer because he was handsome and uh, and uh, you know could you know had a great voice um, then recruits uh, two female uh, co-singers and they put out Don't You Want Me which was a probably the number one yeah, song say, of 1981 that's, that's my childhood that's where I 
That's and, where my, my knowing of the human league begins and ends. And another very stylish, album. expensive video that, you know, the Brits, the re, you know, one of the main reasons that Don't British uh, music was very big in, in the U.S. in the 80s is because when MTV did start, American acts weren't making music videos as art films, and British acts were. So the difference between a crappy 38 special performance video where you can actually see the pit sweat and, you know, the beard dandruff is chess way salad. different. <laughs> yeah, chess salad. And, you know, it's so different from this, like, you know, these little, uh, th- you know, three to four minute, um, you know, video vignettes that are, you know, beautifully shot like, you know, this French New Wave or something. And, um, you know, Dare was a massive album followed by several other very large, uh, you know, several other albums that were very successful. Um, you know, uh, you still hear Keep Feeling Fascination, that, you know, keyboard riff. And, and so the band, again, had its had its experimental time. Um, I would almost, uh, 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 you know, sort of align their arc to something like Genesis, where, you know, they were a very experimental band that then turned to the square, you know, to the to the absolute, you know, most centrist uh, pop that you could possibly put out. So yeah, they so were. So my assumption is James Murphy's referring to. He's talking the, to being boiled. Years. Yeah, yeah, probably being okay. boiled, which is what you know nobody ever listens to, but it's it's actually really interesting, good stuff. So anyway, we'll jump from there to. I got to do, sec- do some Spotify digging and listen to some of those. Totally, Section Twenty Five, a band that I've never heard of. Yeah, so Section Twenty Five was a factory band actually, and um, the song that that I actually did. No, once I, I kind of did some digging myself, was Girls Don't Count. It's actually a pretty cool tune. And, and these guys uh, opened and toured with New Order. Um, actually, uh, Ian Curtis of Joy Division produced the first single, that single. Oh, um, and, you know, I would say, like, if you're talking kind of sound-wise, they're, they're one of the bands that actually is still around, so, like, New Order have kind of managed to, to keep going. But um, they're they're less poppy than both Joy Division and, and New Order, which is probably why, you know, they never quite broke out of the opening slot. Um, it's definitely, you can hear a lot of, like, mid, mid-career mid cure. Um, certainly the early stuff has, has, like, a very Joy Division kind of post-punk, angular, dark, distant bend. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just part of that scene. They were, they were signed to Factory. They were just one of the other bands on that roster, um, so I think this is one of those ones that it, it's, you know, kind of dropping mm-hmm. a, a more obscure band than, than, than Joy Division or New Order or some of the, the ones that we know so well. But actually, you know, the sound is, is pretty relevant to, to that grouping and, and to what obviously influences these well, guys. I can, I can promise you as somebody who saw the, uh, a certain ratio open for New Order on the Low Life <laughs> tour, uh, they have to be better than fucking certain ratio. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was actually got when I started reading up on uh, Section Twenty Five, certain ratio was in my head as the other mm-hmm. Factory band. I was like, oh, these guys blow!" And then I was, I was listening to it pre-listen. I was like, oh, no, like this is definitely guys. not. Yeah, <laughs> they're fucking horrible. So, um, what about uh, staying in the post-punk, uh, you know, um, post-punk world in, in England when you know? Johnny Lydon's, uh, or John Lydon post Sex Pistols, Public Image Limited, we have uh, you on deck for. Yeah, well, Public Image Limited's another kind of tale of two bands. There's uh, uh, the first couple of albums um, were, you know, really 
off the charts, exper- you know, different uh, sounding um, experimental. People obviously had laughed off Johnny Rotten um, as kind of a, a gimmick in the Sex Pistols, as, as kind of gimmicky. He'd had a falling out with, um, you know, uh, um, McLaren and was, you know, very intent, I'm sure, on proving that he is a legitimate uh, musician, a legitimate creative force. Uh, puts together Pill with uh, Ja Wobble and Keith Levine, a uh, very talented bassist and, and guitar player, and puts out a couple of, I think, what you know a lot of people would regard as um, two, you know, two or three of the best um, post-punk records of all time, um, ending this particular era with Flowers of Romance, and then going on uh, through the 80s to be a much more sort of... Um, much more of the sort of Johnny Lydon caricature, the snarl and, and everything. But the, the, these early um, Public Image Limited records are extreme, you know, Metal Box and, um, and the first one are, ex- you know, extremely dark, uh, weird, um, downbeat albums, but they're incredibly affecting. And, you know, I would, I would, you know, say borderline, you know, frightening kind of music. Um, metal box, particularly, uh, you know, songs like Pop Tones is just a, a very strange uh, record that you know w- was put out as a single, and it it just has like this this feeling and this vibe to it that's so angry and disassociated. Um, and I'm gonna stop trying to describe it and just tell you to listen to it. Um, but yeah. Well, Public Image Limited, great band that kind of became a a cartoon of itself later on, but great early on. Two uh, cool pill facts before we jump. Sorry to jump in. Metal Box was actually an album that you could buy that came in a metal box, which is pretty damn cool. And then if you ever, uh, any listeners, and and if you guys haven't seen it, it, you you should definitely uh, Google or YouTube uh, Pills performance on American Bandstand. It is one of the uh, classic "fuck you" punk rock moments where they just, you know, refuse to lip sync, and, and and John Lydon is just shoving, dancing around the stage, putting the microphone in all the dancers' faces. It's great. Definitely. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen that. That's awesome. Yeah, you gotta do it. So next up is all right, Christian. Soft sell. Got the soft sell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, these guys. This is Mark Almond and David Ball, and and you know, I think everybody. These guys are known far and wide for their uh, song Tainted Love, which was, what, 82, Wyndham? Yeah, um, it's a great song. And, uh, yeah, it's awesome. Um, but I think, actually, the reference here, given, you know, given the, the success of, of Tainted Love and, and um, you know, the, the releases thereafter, I think the, the point here is probably um, they're, they're really, so sort of earlier, 1977, 78, <clears throat> um, when they put up Mutant Moments, uh, and, uh, which was an EP, um, you know, they, they made it for 2,000 pounds and, and on a two-track recorder, um, and the song Memorabilia, which was actually produced um, by, uh, by Daniel Miller from, uh, from Mute Records, who okay. I mentioned earlier, um, for Warm Leatherette. So, you know, this was the, these were sort of early, um, like, techno uh, recordings that, or certainly they, they went on to influence uh, subsequent techno recordings. Um, and, you know, it didn't 
didn't necessarily do all that well, but um, it's sort of beloved by people within that scene, I think. Well, even um, if you think so. about Heaven 17, uh, Human League, and Soft Cell, it's interesting because they were, did have such, you know, they did have uh, such commercial success that you forget that they really did invent synth pop. You know, it's yeah, it, it and well, they did it, and they did it. Yeah, they were super popular in the night, you know, in the nightclubs first, and with the you know sort of early DJs and that kind of thing, but but not subsequently. Yeah, they sort of had to refine their sound to to bring it to a wider audience. And you know, we're talking late seventies too, and Soft Cell was a very very overtly uh, gay uh, forward band, and um, you know that was also another thing that just didn't exist really before. Um, you know, that this early 80s uh, club music. I mean, it was, you know, we talked about the loft and things on uh, our disco podcast. I mean, this was, you know, that was sort of a place where men could hide so that they could dance together. This was the, this was the beginning of, of a very different kind of movement to bring everything out into the open. It was, and Mark Allman was, you know, very much a pioneer in that regard. Absolutely. Nice. So should we uh, last one in, in the category for, for New Wave and um, and sort of yeah. post-punk here is 10cc, is that right? Yeah, the name is, uh, you know, is a reference to the metric ton of ejaculation from the average male, the yeah. 10cc. So it's uh, an interesting fact for you. And then um, the uh, band, you know, they were, they were kind of a bunch of, you know, art rock pranksters from Manchester who had some like when I think you talked about 10CC a little bit about like knowing some they had some pop hits and stuff. Well, they were, I, I, they were, they were know, professional what, songwriters and you know so they okay. were they were hired to write um, other people's I, tunes. Yeah, I want to say they may have written like Sugar Sugar by the Archies or something like that. You know what I mean? It's like a couple of these guys. You know these were these were people. They who had knew. hits themselves though, like Rubber Bullets. Yes, and, they had. Uh, well, their big hit. Johnny, hits, don't do it. Their big hit was "I'm Not in Love," which you'll still hear still hear on classic okay. rock radio now. Um, and it, at the time, um, you know, blew everyone's mind. Any anybody who was not even a music nerd, but anybody, you know, I mean, in the George Martin, uh, you know, category of, of you know supreme music supervisor or producers were you know had their minds collectively blown when when 10cc did i'm not in love and it basically it's like a hundred i think it's something like 150 vocal tracks deep um it's a very strange um barely any musical backing it's almost an acapella tune that um uh again like i said you'd you'd know it immediately if you heard it uh, but the, the the magic was them in the studio. And the funny thing, too, is that these guys were being, went on, uh, at least Godly and Cream went on to uh, become massive visual artists uh, and video directors. And they had a song called, as Godly and Cream, once 10CC broke up, uh, had a big video uh, called Cry in the mid-'80s where they were the first ones to employ um, the sort of facial morphing technique that was used in... Um, black and white later on and, and like the Terminator kind of thing um, you know they were the first they, they went on to become very very influential uh, visual artists as well as recording artists so you know 10CC has a lot of prominence in the world but again I think the, the reference here is to the fact that they developed a recording technique that was uh, otherworldly when people heard it for the first time cool alright should we take a break before we move on to the next section here Sure. All right. Sounds good. Warm. Leatherette. 
breaking glass in the underpass. Warm leatherette. Warm leatherette. Warm leatherette. Warm leatherette. Hear the crushing steel. Feel the steering wheel. Hear the crushing steel. Feel the steering wheel. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Leatherette. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today is uh, part three of our break, total breakdown of Losing My Edge, LCD Sound Systems. Uh, original single from 2002. And um, we're getting to the, uh, we're, we're hitting the uh, backstretch. And well, our next category. Talking about sexual harassment. <laughs> exactly. DJs and electronic musicians, which I have to say uh, I know less about than I do um, post-punk and new wave, but I'm going to jump in with sexual harassment. Um, I don't know why they gave me this one, um, it, which is an electronic project. Lynn Tolliver Jr., best known, and they were best known for their 1982 single, I Need a Freak. So that, put that up there with Sex Dwarf and Warm Leatherette, and I think you've got yourself a three-sided single. Uh, Christian, what's, what do you know about Basic Channel? Well, Basic Channel was uh, a Berlin um, sort of techno duo uh it was p- producers mark ernestus and a guy who simply went by Maurizio. um and in 1993 they're uh, <laughs> you know they've got they've got like a pretty small catalog but um you know they are for electronic music fans and like techno heads um this is just like the you know best the uh, best of that era best of that location um and it was the supers like stripped down and spare uh you know minimalistic techno um Yeah, totally. Um, And, uh, you know, it, it, there, there are moments in those first two albums of theirs. um, They're like, they're, it almost, it's just, it's like, you know, it will be cut down to like bass and like a, you know, every um, bar, there will be like one, uh, you know, one, one note or something like that. I mean, it was just incredibly limited Um, and sort of, uh, you know, I think, I think, but, but truly just, thumping bass the entire time so nice. um i think uh for for a for another dj duo that that i think people know a little bit better we'll turn to turn to jeremy sure the uh the chain robots smokers. of uh, <laughs> yeah exactly chain smokers <laughs> um may have influenced chain smokers but uh the french duo daft punk who uh you know the the, the two robots who you know i think like we talked about with LCD at the beginning of the show and, and how much dancing we were all doing at the collective shows that we went to. Um, this is a group that really kind of broke down the barriers of, of, you know, DJ dance floor music with, you know, the masses and, and the kids and, and uh, a group that, you know, I think both Guy and, and Thomas were, were rock kids who, who got turned on to dance music and then started making, you know, great French house music and, and then just kind of quirky, um, just 
brilliant dance tracks. I mean, they're a group that I, I kind of learned of in 97, and uh, I had a, a hip friend who we lived together in a home, and, and we used to throw some, some all-night parties, and, and it was always, you know, we kind of took turns just throwing records on, not quite DJing, but just throwing records we liked on. And I would say around the world wasn't always a, uh, you know, end of the night, everybody. Break get the up coffee and, and table. Move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like um, bad things are going to happen, including me dancing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, there's not a ton that I, I would say other than, you know, obviously LCD, you know, named a later single, Daft Punk playing at my house. This is a group that, that's beloved by the masses and I think crosses into the mainstream, crosses into the rock kids. And, uh, you know, has a, a string of just great dance albums. Too. That's another thing about Daft Punk. I'd say that, you know, like LCD, there's always great singles in, in the sort of world of club music and, and the genre of, of dance music. You don't really get a lot of great albums. And, and these guys, you know, from their debut and Discovery, you know, those are great records from start to finish. And I think the crossover appeal is really the key here. You know, it's like it's the fact that that I mean, you know, and the reference in the song is, of course, the fact that that um, Murphy himself is playing Daft Punk to the Rockheads at CBGB's. Um, and in the same way, the, in the same way that we were talking about going to that concert last week, I mean, it, it really is like the Rockheads are, are dancing. dancing. Um, and, and I think that that has uh, um, terrifying implications, but also, you know, it's a pretty cool phenomenon. So I have to say that neither one of you are as bad at dancing as you, as you claim to be. So it's, um, it's not, it's not as bad as it seems. So it's not as sweaty. Yeah, that is true. That was <laughs> <Yeah>. gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no argument. Are you in wet? <laughs> so, yeah. 10 cc no um the but i think the the other crossover so turning i mean from daft funk like to a, to another dj here is laurent uh, laurent garnier um who was uh, a, a guy a french dj who you know started basically djing nights in london when he was actually working at the french embassy there um and sort of realized that he might be onto something moved to manchester and he was really one of the first europeans i think to begin mixing like american house music in britain so stuff that that you know draws on what we talked about like the detroit techno scene um and uh you know it was really he actually became a pretty big cog in the 80s madchester scene so you know and, that, and when you think about it it makes perfect sense because it's it's like you know there's another group of bands coming out of that whether it's stone roses or, or happy mondays you know who are basically rock bands making dance music yeah. um and on nights that they weren't at rock concerts they were hanging out and listening to laurent garnier you know um spin dj sets at uh the hacienda um and taking all the drugs they could possibly fill yeah. their bodies with it was the at the crossroads of ecstasy and handguns it was a uh, quality establishment i actually never made it to the hacienda i was bummed i never did but, um, Which has actually now been turned into, uh, uh, amazingly, um, like a condo unit. Oh God! Of so you can it still, sounds about it, right. It still, but it still <laughs> has the it still has the facade of the hacienda, which is kind of cool. So it still has the police um, tape you can motif. See pictures of, yeah. you, you can dance yeah. in your condo <laughs> on drugs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've got a I've got a long, uh, funny story about twenty four hour party. I've got two very long story, funny stories about twenty four hour party people that I will save for another episode when we're talking more about uh, something <laughs> more germane. But uh, we've got some we've got some we've got some we've got some, just, got some miles to move through. So uh, black dice. Um, I uh, you know I black, can take- yeah. Why don't you take black dice? I'll punt it to uh, Christian, who knows more about those guys. 
Yeah, I mean they're they're a DFA band, so I mean it's like it's one of the references that he's making to another guy, uh, to another group of guys on the on the label, um, and uh, you know I think it's it's cool that he's shouting out his um, his label mates in two thousand two, but I mean these they, they were really sort of pushing the envelope, um, and I think there was always a lot of discussion. I thought about like whether this was like whether the joke was was on the listener um you know sort of are they really pretentious or are they actually uh you know pushing sort of the um outer boundaries of of like what constitutes good danceable rock music um or good danceable music um and and should just leave it at that um so you know i think that they were innovative for sure but but definitely rubbed some people the wrong way um but you know obviously murphy like I think we know where he comes down on this, um, given uh, given that they're they're part of the the DFA cohort. Sounds good. Nice. And then the last uh, one before we take a break is going to be Todd Terry. Um, you know, I remember Todd Terry. I couldn't tell you a ton about Todd Terry other than I remember. I believe he actually had chart you know chart singles on the British charts. He was very popular in England, um, but he's more of like a remix guy. Um, do either of you guys know uh, uh, more about Todd Terry? Or? No. I know just that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember. I always remember his name being associated with remixes. And, and on that, you know, bit of uh, collective ignorance, I think we're going to take a break and come back and talk <laughs> about something we know a little but bit more was, about. Go ahead. Was he American? Yeah. Yeah, he was American, but he was much more yeah. popular in England. So um, that was okay. that's the extent of my recollection. I remember having my roommate moving back from England and having a Todd Terrica single. Um, that is. So you win that round, James Murphy. Yeah, exactly. Damn, Damn you! All right, let's take a quick break and come back. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are dissecting LCD sound systems losing my edge. And we are, we've come to the, uh, the portion of the show where we're going to talk about his hip-hop references in this song. And um, 
this is a band I know that Jared and I lived through, um, but I believe Christian is also a very big fan. So Eric B. and Rakim, hit it, guys. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, kind of uh, a true hip-hop artist, artist. So, you know, there's a lot of times you have that, that those groups that um, other artists adore and, and find, you know, influence from. And I think Eric B. and Rakim are, are that in the hip-hop circles, especially the New York East Coast style of hip-hop. You had, uh, you know... Just really sharp, cool, uh, you know, jazz samplings, horn samplings over kind of street tough lyrics, but in, in, in a really kind of crisp delivery that that uh, Rakim, you know, brought to hip hop. And, and, you know, if you look at a lot of the guys that, that kind of came up in that late early 90s through the 90s and 2000s, um, you know, I think all of them will, will reference back to Eric B. and Rakim. And, and Christian, I think you said they're playing a show, a reuniting soon, playing yeah, a Yeah, I think show I just, or... I literally saw this, yeah, like two days ago, they're playing one of their first shows, and I think it was, uh, I probably would have been 20 years, right? Um, uh, in a couple of, I think, a couple I think, of months. I think that would so, be worth um, trying to score some tickets for. Yeah, I mean, Rakim is, as you say, like he's the guy, the guy was such an innovator. I mean, when you think about the way that um, uh, he's sort know, of credited the, the, with inventing the, flow, you know. Well, yeah, and when you consider the way that you were sort of being shouted at in the 1980s, um, in pretty much every rap song, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it just, it, like, I mean, to actually sort of to to I think bring down the volume a little bit and sort of deadpan it, but but actually sort of you know in, inflect it with. Um, Emotions cool. other than anger. <laughs> cool. It was um, a very cool. Yeah, delivery. exactly. Yeah, it was smooth. Yep. Um, and I think that that really, you know, set off the the New York uh, hip hop scene. So um, with with a you know set it off in a new direction. Cool. Well, and sticking in the eighties, <clears throat> you've got uh, Soul Sonic Force, Christian. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, uh, I I I don't think it needs that much introduction. Probably the best fashion. Um, uh, or certainly the best sunglasses ever from from Africa, Bombada. Um, you know, Planet Rock was was the you know the major hit in 1982, um, and you know it wove together everything from like German electronic music, British rock, and and disco and rap, uh, and you know in the very very early uh, earliest um, examples of, of you know disco rap. So um, you know I think all these different like elements and styles were thrown together uh, by by these guys in the Bronx and um, arguably kind of invented rap or, you know, um, you know, defined it certainly as, as a genre of its own. Um, and I think it was really, really popular. Um, and, you know, I think everything, everything that's happened since is, is basically, you know, has to, has to pay its dues to, to this song and, and Africa Bombada. So. Yeah. I remember, you know, you talk about hearing, you know, trans Europe express, you know, reinterpreted as a hip hop song. I mean, I, you know, my curiosity, I was, you had no idea where, you know, how those two worlds collided. It was, um, you know, I certainly wouldn't think there was a ton of Kraftwerk fans, but, uh, you know, apparently um, this guy heard those records and loved them and, and, you know, put them to use. So thank you, Africa Bombada, who also did a, uh, a hip hop song later with uh, Johnny, Ro- Johnny Lydon uh, called World Destruction. So there's an interesting. Um, uh, look that one up when you get a chance it's a pretty funny song um, anyway yeah. what, what's up next yeah so next we got uh, Rom, Rommel Z 
Oh, who yeah. I, uh, you know, this is another one that like sexual harassment, I'm going to be pretty brief on. Um, but he was, you know, part sort of graffiti artist, New York City graffiti artist slash hip hop artist. Um, best known for a song with uh, K-Rob called Beat Bop. And uh, a guy that, you know, has remained kind of obscure, and but obviously had an influence if you were in New York at the time, I imagine. And then at last up is Mantronics, <laughs> which, Christian, I do not want you to uh, confuse with Mannheim Steamroller, uh, another one of your favorites. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shit. All right. Um, so fresh well, so these guys were the... Got it. Okay. Yeah, no, they were... I mean, it was, they were early, uh, and, and I think pretty influential um, 80s hip-hop uh, hip-hop group that, that sort of blended. I mean, they were from New York City, but they really blended, you know, old-school hip-hop and, like, club music. Um, so this is where I think... Um, the Larry Levon world collides with uh, with African Bombada's world um, and produces Mantronics. Mantronics, uh, not uh, yeah. Right so Mantronics will produce ten cc. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, you want to take a quick break and come back with our final our final chapter, which is Ugh, uh, the, the infamous jazz musicians, composers, and <laughs> miscellaneous. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is the, I don't know, know what that, yeah, these <laughs> <Exactly>. are, <laughs> I ran out of categories and put these people together. Yeah. yeah I'll take potpourri for All 400. Right. All right. Let's take a quick break. Yeah. And come back. Sip the juice. I got enough to go around. And the thought takes place uptown. I grew up on a sidewalk while on street talk. And they talk to all New York. I go to Queens for Queens to get the food from Brooklyn. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, if you have been listening to all three um, episodes concerning Losing My Edge by LCD Sound System, uh, you will either be extremely upset or very pleased that we are coming to our final segment uh, involving this song and its myriad references, all 63 of them. And this, as I, as I teased before the break, is our uh, final category, jazz musicians, composers, and miscellaneous, um, which is miscell- miscellaneous, stuff. one of my favorite genres of all time. Um, I love miscellany. So anyway, uh, Christian, first up, David Axelrod, who, uh, the sadly uh, recently deceased David Axelrod. Um, yeah, I mean, he was an American composer and, and arranger and producer. Um, 
and uh, and not to be confused with the the chief strategist of Barack Obama's campaign, who I probably know a hell of a lot more about. So why don't you tell us a little bit <laughs> well, about what you know about David Axelrod? Well, <laughs> they both had mustaches. Um, and uh, Axelrod is one of those guys. He's sort of uh, again another sort of a bit of a mythical figure. Um, you know, people talked about these early albums that he put out that were you know sort of precursors to disco dance music. And uh, he later then um, became more of a, a producer and arranger and worked on some fairly, you know, uh, mainstream stuff through uh, the 80s. But I don't think he ever put records out again after, um, after his earliest, earliest stuff when he was, uh, you know, when he, uh, wanted to, when he tried to make it as a solo performer. Um, and um, anyway, check out He's David He's a big, Oxford. like... Uh yeah, he got he got looped. I mean, so he he was sampled heavily in in like hip hop in the nineties, right? Yeah. So it was like and De La used him and Beat Nuts and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you DJ know, Premier did. Just imagine when David Axelrod did die. I believe it was earlier this year. I mean, the 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 tears were shed by the likes of James Murphy, Questlove, uh, Moby. That's that's those are the people that were eulogizing him. Those are the so, people that were him. Yeah, it was a uh, you know he's a crate diver crate diver's dream. Um, so next up is uh, Sun Ra, and that guy was uh, crazy. Yeah, Sun Bizarre. Um, Sun Ra, I mean, a guy, a name that, you know, I, I certainly, it's, it, Sun Ra is one of those people that you definitely hear uh, groups or musicians that you're into reference as an influence. So, you know, my first introduction to Sun Ra was actually Sonic Youth playing a free show in um, Central Park in probably the early 90s and they had Sun Ra open for them because he was such a huge influence for them and he was pretty obscure at that point, you know, and kind of coming back into relevance as people were were talking more and more about him. But, you know, what he was was a a really kind of cosmic uh, in in the sort of likes of of a George Clinton, but a a jazz musician and, and, you know, very kind of... uh, you know, out there sort of um, early experiment. Well, he, he, sorry, I can't speak right now. Experimental jazz musician. It was a, the character. I mean, he claimed to be thousands of years old and from outer space. Yeah. Uh, and exactly. really, really yeah. his name was Her- Herman uh, Blunt and he was from Alabama. Um, but at the, <laughs> same, at the same time, this guy did create this sort of, uh, I mean. But before he, the internet, you guys just, you had no way of fact checking that. So it was well, I mean, you totally know, it was, plausible. No, it was yeah, more. It was, he was written about, but he was. Uh, he also was just like always in costume, you know, huge sort of colorful cosmic costumes. I mean, huge, huge influence on people like Parliament, Funkadelic, yeah. um, but you know, definitely anybody else from outer space. Unlike, <laughs> unlike, uh, unlike the, 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 you know, uh, the inhabitants of the mothership, um, you know, Sun Ra you could never really tell whether this was a tongue-in-cheek thing or whether he was completely he believed convinced it. of his own, uh, you know, uh, cosmic, um, you know, citizenship. So, yeah, I, I, I never saw him break character, and um, he was a kook. He was great. Um, but well, yeah. another guy, too, that, like I said early on, rock kids started to get influenced, you know, especially noise musicians and kind of, you know, uh, avant-garde kind of art rock would always reference Sun Ra, so that was kind of my intro to him. Mm. So, anyway, moving mm, forward. Say it loud, say it. Uh, On three, I think, you know, three, two, one. Gil, Gil Scott, Scott Heron. Heron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Gil Scott Heron, um, most famous, uh, you know, he was, he was sort of a hybrid 
Um, I'm not even sure, you know, Gil Scott Heron was most famous as a musician. He was sort of a, um, a beat poet. and uh, you know, credited he, as being like the first rapper. Like it's yeah. either MC Coke Rock or it's him. Well, Gil Scott Heron was a spoken word guy, and so it wasn't yeah. rap so much as it was sounded. It was more like poetry to jet along that was, you know. No, but in the same way that disco rap was, I mean, was its own thing before the genre rap existed, he was a rapper um, yeah. before rap music existed. Correct. He was, yeah, he was a, a guy who, who, you know, whose delivery was, uh, you know, uh, it was unmistakable. He was his own thing, but, uh, you know, Usually accompanied by jazz, he spoke, and um, he was very political. Um, you know, his most famous track is "The Revolution Will Not Be Televised," uh, which is a killer track um, yeah. in and of itself. But it was also then, um, you know, I came to it in again in reverse order by listening to a lot of Public Enemy in the '80s, and then finding Gil Scott Heron as a result of that, and realizing that I had actually heard that before, but hadn't put two and two together that they were the same. Thing, but uh, anyway, uh, James Murphy, in the, within the context of losing my edge, gets gets kind of excited about Gil Scott Heron, um, or perhaps, or perhaps emulates his uh, spoken word. Yeah, that, that is uh, another theory that I actually believe uh, you're probably correct on. Um, but <laughs> that, you know, that is just occurring to you now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah. always thought of Gil Scott Heron in the same way, you know, sort of <clears throat> uh, with Huey, you know, Huey Newton and you know, the Black Panther movement. And other things uh, from my childhood in, in uh, the Bay Area that um, you know yep. that uh, made me nervous as a kid. So I was gonna say uh, my my intro to tele- Revolution will not be televised was in a history class watching um, the Black Panther movement on a documentary, and that song was the soundtrack, and just being like. Whoa! What is this song? Well, this also, is awesome. Just <laughs> yeah. being like, sort of, you know, exist in that period. Just, um, you know, being absolutely fascinated by those guys and frightened by them at the same time. Yeah. And knowing that that was the pinnacle of cool, um, but also, you know, capable. You know, there was a group that was advocating violence. They also had and, machine guns. Yeah, there was yeah. it was a ballsy look, and uh, Gil Scott Heron not among that. But certainly um, a uh, you know a, a contemporary, and um, you know that is my my very disorganized Gil Scott Heron summary. Who's up and next? And from there we can pivot to somebody's grandmother. It sounds like Dorothy Ashby. Um, so <laughs> Grandma Ashby, Jeremy. <laughs> am I uh, am I Ashby? Okay, so. Um, yeah, Dor- Dorothy Dot, as I called her, my grandmother, <laughs> um, was a jazz harpist, composer, and, and uh, you know, really kind of basically took the, the jazz, sort of the instrument and, and uh, you know, the harp in, in particular and, and kind of put it into to bebop, you know, and, and used it in the same way people were using saxophones and, and other more sort of... Um, jazz forward instruments at the time, and that's uh, she did I think it was about like you guys. It, it was about showing people that like different instruments could be used as yeah. substitutes for saxophones. It's like I can make a harp awesome. You can, you know, it's like that. That obviously appeals to somebody who is a multi instrumentalist, such as uh, such as the James Murphys of the world. Also, people who are just obsessed with sound. Yeah, but Dorothy Ashby too. You know, I mean, she later, you know, she wound up guesting on a lot of uh, very well-known records. Uh, she had a kind of, she was almost like a session musician in the '70s. Um, you know, she was on Minnie Riperton's record, uh, Stevie Wonder, and um, 
she was on Bill Weathers records as well. So, you know, when there was a, I think when uh, there was a harpist, uh, Doc, need. Doc got the call. Want to sit in? <laughs> put up, put up the uh, the harpist symbol, like in this, you know, spotlighted exactly. over the over the city. The Ashby, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, up next, Althea and Donna. Christian, are you taking this one? I think you are, because you know. I mean, you know more about them than I do. I know. I know more about reggae than you do. I don't know a ton about Althea and Donna, but these were a. Um, uh, they were a Jamaican reggae duo, um, kind of Sly and Robbie um, as counterparts. But uh, they had a single called Uptown Top Ranking, which was a big hit in the UK, where reggae was a lot bigger uh, than it was here in the States. And, um, you know, I, I don't well, know. It was, was, it, is it, was it dub stuff that, like, I mean, that sort of filtered no, this was, through this into was things more, like Pill and... No, this, I mean, there was some of that, but there there was, you know, I think they were more of a, a straightforward, like, vocal group. I think you you probably um, were tortured like by... Like Rocksteady. I think that you were tortured, uh, this, as I was, by Dad's love of Boney M. Boney M? Yeah, Jesus. and this was sort of, a, of more of that uh, style of, of work. Than, and you, you know, were going to say of, that. More yeah. of a pop, pop reggae than, a, than that sort of intense... Um, one... one. Other thing, these guys, so the album, I think this was a, a tough-to-find song or single or, or album for many years, and it was reissued in, in the early 2000s, but Portishead also co- uh, covered it. Covered oh, really? the song, oh, Uptown cool. Top Ranking, yeah, in the Did 90s. Not know that. I forgot that. So, beloved in England, and uh, we got to discover it through James Murphy. Thank you. Thank you, James cool. Murphy. All right. And who was up next? Next, we have Pharaoh Sanders. And Christian, you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, it, I think, you know, again, um, he's a Grammy Award-winning jazz uh, saxophonist, saxophonist, whatever. Um, <laughs> that sounded very warm, leather reddish. <laughs> yeah, this is sort of my, my um, level of enthusiasm about uh, saxophones. The saxophone? Um, yeah. New York's all right if you like saxophones. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's seen as, as sort of the best tenor player in the world, which still doesn't impress me. Yeah. He was a, a John Coltrane <laughs> guy too. He played with Coltrane. Oh yeah, you unimpressed um, by John Coltrane on. too, Christian? Because uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, totally. Yeah, I'm sure. You know what? That's why he killed himself. Um, so is, uh, Scott Walker, uh, I have next. I'm, I got next. Scott Walker is actually there's a great. You know, I mean, there's a lot to know about Scott Walker. He was a um, he. The Walker brothers had a. They were a essentially a boy band in the 60s um you know they were teen idols they were sort of you know in the same vein as like cliff richard and and you know the first iteration of cat stevens where they were positioned as you know uh almost like the monkeys and i know this largely because our cousin marina um it, you know grew up in love with scott walker uh was her favorite walker brother and i think she followed the, tried to follow them around the country um and Scott Walker had a, a very kind of, you know, he had a deeper uh, kind of sensibility and wanted to break out um, and did wind up putting out some really strange, um, not strange, uh, that's a wrong word, um, some very uh, um, sort of interesting, interesting and uh, experimental records uh, as a solo artist. Um, you know, the, the song that you'll probably know him best for is uh, 30th Century Man. Um, and that song, I think, who, who soundtrack not was soundtrack? Con- not the King Crimson. 
No. Um, yeah, that was 20th century. Yeah, okay. Um, no, that but was, yeah. That was actually 20th, 20th century, century schizoid man. Schizoid man, yeah. Um, but yeah, Scott Walker, okay. th- then later, you know, after a long absence from the scene where, you know, people hadn't really considered him in a long time, um, came back in the 2000s with a, a couple of solo records that were, you know, sort of universally adored by the indie rock crowd. Um, so Scott Walker... Is that to gear uh, up for his campaign as uh, governor of Wisconsin? Yes, it is, actually. That was, uh, you okay. know, uh, I don't know if you... Because uh, we have Scott Walker and David Axelrod on this list, which is I know, awesome. it is. And, you know, I, I don't know if you remember his, his hit song... Um, Fuck the unions, but uh, that was uh, Scott Walker. <laughs> no, but uh, this Scott Walker, um, they were American. They became popular in England. They weren't really popular in America. It was a the whole thing was kind of strange and convoluted the way that his career worked out. And he just got more and more experimental and more daring later. But um, they were, like I said, they were a boy band. So this is the equivalent of like, you know, Joe Jonas turning into Tom Waits. Um, so he, it's an interesting uh, trajectory. I mean, he, he kind of stopped Harry in 1970 and then started in 2000 and, and has almost put out an album every year, you yeah. know, up until I think his last one was, you know, 2014 or so, or no, actually 2016, you know, yeah. it's crazy. So um, it started out very poppy and then sort of went very uh, academic, experimental. Yeah, and he had this baritone voice, so it was, you know, it, it was a very commanding kind of sound. I mean, it's not quite Sturgill, but it's, you know, it's like, it's like if Sturgill had been an NSYNC, um, you know, this, it would, you know, it would be like, That doesn't really that actually guy? mean yeah. a whole hell of a lot, in, like, as a description, but yeah. I no, 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 but I mean, yeah, it, I get that's the, how. Get the idea, the, the juxtaposition. That's how strange it is that Scott Walker became a very interesting artist, I should say. That's, that's what I'm trying to get at, that, you know, cool. from the least expen- expected place and the least expected perch comes this, you know, sort of intellectually forward strange dude that used to be a pop idol he sounds like kind of a badass he is a badass he's good you like him so who's up who's up next i got the fania all-stars here who were uh and this this is actually a really cool story yeah they were i mean they were a musical ensemble um established in 68 by a composer um can i ask you one, one good uh trivia question Sure. Who's the only band on this list to sell out Yankee Stadium? That would be the Fania All-Stars. You are correct. Ding. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Um, and, I mean, they were the... So it was. Uh, it's like a, a super group, effectively, um, of the biggest Latin music uh, musicians and music names on, on Earth. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think they were mega stars, and this was sort of when world music really sort of started coming to the fore. Um I guess in, in late sixties and seventies, um, you know, following, uh, I mean, I, I, you always sort of think of, of, um, you know, George Harrison's like inclusion of, um, uh, think, you know, sitar and, and Beatles music was sort of tipping that off a little bit. Um, and then, you know, the subsequent decade of, um, of sort of enthusiasm and, uh, exploring other, you know, other types of or other cultures, musics. Um, and, you know, this is probably sort of the, the, uh, one of the one of the crowning achievements of that era um, was probably selling out Yankee Stadium with, for these guys. So, um, so yeah, big yeah, I mean, big they, deal. 
I mean, they were, you know, basically they were an all-star team. They were, um, you know, they were a super group. Uh, but, you know, uh, Tito Puente was in the band. Yeah, Ru- Ruben Blades, Willie Colon. I mean, you had, you know, this was really the, the creme de la creme of, of you know, Latin uh, musicians. And, uh, you know, New York It's also City. worth noting that there are more people in the Fania All-Stars than probably on the New York Yankees. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And uh, But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, like, if you, you know the greatest Latin band of all time, if you put together the greatest Latin band of all time, you're not going to have a hard time selling out 50,000 seats at that uh, Yankees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a very cool idea, and they were you know, a very cool band. So we'll, uh, we've got one, one, last, uh, one last band to go. Who's going to take it? Uh, the Bar Case. Judging, I can, uh, you know. I can start on the, go ahead, Wayne. Uh, well, depending on who you ask, this is either number 61 or 63 on the list. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you could just count, but. Certainly yeah. not in terms of merit. They're pretty great. Yeah, no, I mean, the Bar Case, and I'll talk their early years, and, and you guys can jump in wherever. But, um, you know, these, this was Otis Redding's band, basically, you know, Stacks, Stacks band that um from memphis and uh tragically you know um half the band ended up going down in that that plane crash with with otis in the 60s um they you know the surviving members reformed and you know had a really significant career i mean backed up uh isaac hayes on hot buttered soul um had a bunch of hit albums under their own name and, uh, you know, just was one of those kind of, like, uh, really amazing stories considering what had happened tragically in the beginning. Yeah, they were the, they were the house band at, at uh, Stax Vault Records. Yeah. And so, and then Otis loved them so much that he took them on, he took them as his own band, took, took them on them tour, it. and four of them died in that plane crash. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, a horrifying uh, loss. And, uh, but, yeah, the Barques had some uh, hits, Shake Your Rump to the Funk. Uh, among others, so yeah, great, great band, and, and they sort of they sort of bounced back and like did their own thing in, in the seventies as a funk band, right? Correct. Yeah, they yeah were. they they went on yeah to sort of have their own albums and get out of the the backing band gig. Well, I think much like the you know the Fania All Stars, um, you know the the being the house band at Stax Volt uh, means that you're the best player in that region, probably. Um, and so this was a, you know, this was kind of an all-star team of very, very funky players, drummer, you know, um, and so, uh, you know, all master musicians and they put it to good use. They had some kick-ass hits. Nice. Nice. So. Well, we did it. We did it. Congratulations. Congratulations, you two. Yeah. We finally, yeah. We've come to the clip. Bring my shirt out. Yeah, exactly. God. Um, I was going to say, Christian, uh, you know, instead of 10cc, he, was, uh, he, he put about 10 LBs into that uh, black T-shirt on the uh, uh, last I, I mean, to the, not the to, church of LCD. Not yeah. to get too graphic here, but I've never had to throw out a T-shirt at a bar after a concert, um, which was... <laughs> only only underwear. underwear. Only, no, literally, literally to wear one that I had just bought because I couldn't continue to hang out for the rest of the night wearing that so uh, yeah thank you uh, lcd sound system you got me moving yeah and um so we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna come back and end uh this episode the way we end every episode so uh thanks for listening to our lcd um uh recap and we've had a lot of fun doing it and we will be back with um what are you listening to
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, this is how we wrap up every episode um, with a little bit of what are you listening to and then adding a song to the top one million ten best songs of all time uh, playlist. And so, Jerry, what are you listening to? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm going to kind of go back in time here to... Uh, the 80s again, and, and I, uh, I happened to score some tickets with some friends last night to see uh, an aging rock star band, U2, perform the Joshua Tree, and uh, I've been listening to the Joshua Tree all day today. I, it's an album that, it's kind of funny, it was an album, I think I've talked to Wynn about this, that I just, I fucking hated when it came out, um, and I just thought those guys were total pretentious, long-haired, hippie wannabes coming over from Europe trying to tell Americans Stereo what American music woman. sounded like, and... Uh, Exactly, and and uh, I've grown to really love that album, particularly the drums and bass and kind of the Daniel Lanois percussion, and and you know Brian Eno was the other producer on that that album, and uh, yeah, I just I it was fun to go see, and uh, I had fun listening to it all day today, and that's where I'm at. I have cool. to I have to say though there was I was talking to my mom about this when when uh, last night when you you mentioned that you were at the concert and she just had the great line that you know I was saying like yeah these guys are always they've come across as so self serious and she was like yeah that guy literally wants to get canonized like speaking of Bono and I was like oh that actually I makes a lot that. of sense I think that might be true yeah. Yeah, that's not a bad call. That's a that's one for Robin. Uh, good call. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I hope to God you tailgated through the Lumineers, Jer. I did. Yeah, okay. I heard some ho hays coming out of the stadium, but I was, I was uh, sucking down beers and, and smelling wafts of uh, greasy burgers being grilled mm. in Foxborough parking lot. Illegal marijuana. Anyway, Christian, what are you listening to? Uh, so actually, I'll go with a documentary I just watched, which was the the four-hour um, Celtics-Lakers 30 for 30, which was awesome. Um, I mean, I think uh, it, it captures perfectly a rivalry that lasted a decade, and, you know, I, I think it was it was pretty exciting. I, I personally think these are great, regardless of whether you are, you know, um, a fan of the teams uh, or, or even the sports in question. Most of the documentaries are, are a ton of fun to watch, but in this particular case, um, it was just great seeing how much of a like, competitive shit-talker Larry Bird was, mm. um, something that I think uh, had sort of been lost on me since uh, since I was born, sort of at the tail end of his uh, his run. So Yeah, it's hard to imagine a guy looking like that being that, that cocky, but he was great. Um, yeah, you're was- way too ugly to be that much of a dick. <laughs> I will those also. Are, I also say that great I, series. To uh, you know, here's my my uh, rock rock fan bona fides right here. But I think I'm the only person that watched that thirty for thirty, and saw the foot. You know, saw a crowd shot from 1984 and said, "Oh my God, there's Doug Figer from the Knack." Um, nice. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm in, in L.A. or in Boston? It was in L.A. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. they were a big band at that point. But I was like, "Oh my God, there's Doug Figer." Um, anyway. Um, I am going to go with uh, Rips, a band I discovered this morning. Um, uh, <laughs> that is what I've been listening to today. I really like the record, and apparently Christian's going to see their record release party, or going to their record release party on Saturday night. So um, yeah, that's right. I'll report in from the from the show from next the week. Field. So. And um, that takes us to uh, what song are you going to put on the top four hundred seventy-two thousand? 10 best songs of all time this week. Christian? I think I'm going to go with Disclosure When a Fire Starts to Burn. 
Nice. Um, yeah, I've been spinning that album a lot again, um, and I probably should have looked up whether Losing My Edge is already on that playlist of ours. Um, somebody may want to add that, but uh, but I think, um, yeah, no, I'm going to go with Disclosure. It's just such a pop and dance song, and the the drum uh, the drum machines in those are, like, incredible, so. Cool. Jared, what are you, right. you throw on the list? Yeah, so I, I'm going to rebel and go completely out of the, after three episodes of talking, Losing My Edge and, and Kraut Rock and dance music and jazz. Um, I'm going to go to a band that we, yeah, I'm going to go classic rock. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about the Allman Brothers um, when they got crushed in our, uh, our greatest American band and, and Christian cried for, I think, a few weeks post that. But um, we never talked about Greg Allman passing. And, uh, you know, my favorite tune by them is the tune that kicks off um, Eat a Peach and it's uh, Ain't Wasting Time No More. First of all, it's a... Uh, it's like a three and a half minute song, which it's is pretty rare for the for them, Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it just kind of encompasses all the the pieces of that band that that did make them one of America's greatest bands. When? All right. Well, I am going to um, take your advice, Christian. I'm going to put on "Losing My Edge" by LCD Sound System. Um, I think that's a fitting way to wrap this up. Should yeah, we uh, should we talk about it for the next ten minutes? Yeah, I, I think we, I think this and I, I think that's going to end uh, the episode. Um, yeah, no, I think I think it's it's only fair that we uh, that we dangle that one out there for everybody to listen to after we've talked about it for what amounts to about three hours. Um, but yeah, yeah it's been exactly. a lot of fun doing this, and much like the uh, fourteen round and fourteen episode um, tournament we had in March to crown America's greatest band, I don't really need to talk about LCD Sound System for a little bit. No, until the new album drops, we'll yes. be back, and then we'll be talking about it a lot. So anyway, it's been really All fun, right. but um, let's uh, let's drop the mic and walk yeah. off the stage. That's it for this episode of Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening. <laughs>